Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we turn to your essential political analysis for this week, I want to tell you about our wonderful partners at The Resident where all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with quintessential British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without the resident, you might not get to experience London. And without the resident, we wouldn't be here on Whitehall Sources. Whitehall Sources, your essential essential politics podcast is brought to you in association with The Resident. Well, you have, me, just, you have just told For you. me, for me, this is not about... Oh, basically, come on, look. This is not about you have, Matt you, you have, As a journalist, you've written a book with this guy and within months of the book coming out, you've torched Look, it, right? Every, I mean, you've fried the contact, you've ripped up the NDA, you've published all the messages. There are I'm, not many taking, things, I'm not taking a judgment, I'm just no, saying no, you have done that. There are many things I could sit here and say about Matt Hancock, which I'm not going to well, do. Now it seems a good time to I me. I am not going to do. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording on Thursday the 2nd of March. Lovely to have you there. Thank you for finding us. Please press follow and subscribe. You are part of a very exclusive club of Whitehall Sources listeners if you press follow or subscribe to Pentagon, which platform you're listening to. There are lots and lots of you and we love that you're there. Thank you very much. If you could do us a favour, by the way, and we ask this humbly, could you tell someone about our podcast this week, please? Just welcome them in to the Whitehall Sources family. We would love that if you could. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, Kirsty Buchanan is also here, former special advisor to Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning. And we've also got Frankie Leach, who was an advisor to Jeremy Corbyn when he was Labour leader. Hello, Frankie. Hello. The power trio reunite. Now, sadly, <laughs> uh, the three of us didn't all make it to the Kebab Awards the other night. Kirsty was otherwise engaged. Um, Frankie and I did make it. And apparently, Theresa May was there. Did you was see? She? Yeah, so they said in the political spotted list. Oh. Have you ever been to the Kebab Awards before, by the way, Kirsty? 
Do you know what? I haven't. I really, really wanted to go as well. I'm slightly gutted, but I, it was my timeline was full yes. of kebabery. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it was yeah. utter. I've never been. This was my first time at the Kebab Awards. It was a massive politics, journalism, schmooze fest. There were a thousand people there. I was absolutely. I've never seen an awards thing like it. It was astonishing. Other than the Brits, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play that. Oh, card. okay. Um, well, did you go to the Brits, Callum? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't mention it. You didn't right. say. Okay. <laughs> well, that was inevitable, wasn't it? Uh, and, but it was incredible. It was absolutely amazing. Angela Rayner was speaking about um, about the kebabs, kebabs that she likes. Nadim Zahawi was speaking, and he said he's gone from dealing with the donors to celebrating the donors. At which point, somebody heckled, saying, "Pay your pay effing your taxes." taxes. <laughs> It may or may not have been me. I'm which is a good deal which is a good deal funnier than his clunky joke, right? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Also we we spread a rumour around the kebab wards to the various hacks that were present that someone wasn't there and I was texting them the, the down low. I was like, God, it's it's gone mad, there's kebabs akimbo. Someone <laughs> shouted at Nadim's house to pay his taxes and launched a donner at his head. He's been taken off in a stretcher. And they were like, what is going on? I was like, the kebab awards have been shut down. It's pandemic. <laughs> Frankie was spreading fake news, is what she was saying. And then she very quickly had to clarify to the journalist who wasn't there that she was texting that she was, in fact, making it up just for <laughs> drama. It's like, go the desk, pull the door. Oh, my word. Anyway, it was... Kebab attack on former chairman. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Oh my goodness! It was just—it was something else. Uh, and Do you I, know what? It's I, like a—it's a testament to Ibrahim Dogus, who's the the founder and kind of host of the Kebab Awards, which is that that man has totally got it on lockdown in terms of how to lobby successfully. Yeah. Which is like instead of getting yourself a PPE contract and then being hauled into an inquiry two years later, <laughs> his version of lobbying is like host the world's biggest Kebab Awards. Yeah. And invite. All and sundry from Westminster, and, all and, and sundry also show loads up. of kebab shop award people as well who've yeah. actually come to get their awards, and somehow it works. Yeah. And every year it's absolutely rampant. I mean, it's impressive. It is. It is one of the biggest uh, events in the kind of politico Westminster calendar, except for the Spectator Awards, which yeah. I fish, fish, fish. Really think Whitehall Saucers should get an invite to this year. Kirsty, I think that's a great idea. We love the spectator. We respect the spectator. We heart we the spectator. Heart the spectator. Um, and we would, yes, I mean, we would fit in very well at the spectator We, we would behave. Mm. We would be fine. Admirably. Would... No fake news would be spread, Frankie. Let that be a warning. <laughs> I would never spread fake news about an outlet such as the spectator <laughs> good anyway so the kebab awards what a pleasure to be there it was utter carnage but it was utterly wonderful at the same time so well done everyone welcome to whitehall sources here we are to analyze today's politics by listening to Kirsty and Frankie and their experiences, their insights, and yes, their analysis on what exactly is happening. On today's episode, other than Kebabs Akimbo, we have, uh, we're going to do a bit of Windsor framework chat for you. Really interesting polling, actually, today that suggests that perhaps this has been a good week for Rishi Sunak. He's probably been in need of one. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. And of course, we're going to talk lockdown files as well. And let's do that first. These are the leaked WhatsApp messages. I say leaked, as, uh, that's perhaps a clunky word to use because the context for this, for those who are coming fresh to the lockdown files, Matt Hancock gave 
100,000 WhatsApp messages to the journalist Isabel Oakshot so that she could write with him his pandemic diaries, the book. I'm not quite sure how sales are going. But anyway, they wrote that book uh, based on the sort of real-time experiences that the health secretary at the time of COVID was having, the conversations he was having uh, with senior ministers and other officials as well. So that was that. And then all of a sudden this week, after a couple of months of investigation, The Telegraph publishes, or starts to publish at least, the WhatsApp messages sent between Hancock and other ministers. They contain 2.3 million words, Issues covered, care home deaths, lockdowns, testing, school closures, face masks. And so this lockdown files investigation is revealing the contents of all of this. It has put a large cat amongst the many pigeons um, in terms of whether this is in the public interest. Are we learning things? Is it helpful? Is it constructive? There's lots to untangle here. Let's get to it. Kirstie, shall we start with that? Is it in the public interest for us to have access to these 100,000 messages right now? Uh, look, 100%. There's a difficulty with this. I've I've listened to Matt Hancock uh, talk about how he feels betrayed by Isabel Okershot. Well, I kind of... I got stuck on the hypocrisy of a man who cheated on his wife and handed over these WhatsApp messages, which involve breaching the confidentiality of others, by the way, whining on about how he feels betrayed and how he feels his trust has been cast asunder. I mean, if I was a work colleague of his... I would be furious. If mm. I was his ex-wife, I'd be like, mm-hmm, hurts, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, I come back to the point I, I frequently come back to when we talk about the pandemic. If I had lost a loved one or gone through the trauma of seeing a loved one fight for their life during the pandemic, or I was love, you know, I had a relative or a loved one who worked in the care services or worked in the NHS, listening to this man bleat on in this self-pitying way about how betrayed he feels, uh, would make me see red this morning. Mm. So what's interesting is that my granny actually died in a care home of COVID mm. during lockdown. And when I hear about this and I see stuff like this, like, you're absolutely right, Kirsty. I sort of pendulum swing between just feeling upset about it because, you, you know, like the way that the care home scandal was handled was just, it was so bad and seeing it all play out in text, like we all knew how badly it was going, but to see it play out in text and there'd be no kind of admittance or acceptance that those decisions in cabinet led to inevitably the deaths of people, the infections of many people and, you know, a horrendous experience for care workers who were having to look after those people and watch them not come back. But also I feel really angry, which is that the thing that really gets on my nerves, particularly is when we went to my granny's funeral, um, my mum was there and my aunt was there and my mum and her sister are very close and they weren't even allowed to touch each other at the funeral. They couldn't hug, you know, they couldn't cry together. And it was just the most dehumanising experience I've ever had, which is to be stood grieving and not be able to touch your family. is It's just horrible. And seeing those texts, seeing that all come back and then having someone go around, as you say, bleating about how unfair it is, it makes me want to scream and I'm sure that it will be a universal experience for everyone. That is the trauma that people are now resurfacing I suppose in the context of these text messages. Just on the public interest question first, Frankie do you think it is in the public interest that we have these messages right now? I think it's difficult because public interest is a defence. I would defend to the hilt. I think that we've had loads of things that have come out 
that public interest has been an absolutely crucial part of the defence of being able to get that information out there because people are at serious risk when they leak things. In terms of the way that Matt Hancock's kind of texts came about, I can see from his perspective that if Isabel Oakeshott signed an NDA, he will be feeling very betrayed. But it's kind of like, what did you expect? These are so high level it reveals so much about how rubbish they all were and is that and like, a good how thing? could you be so stupid is, is that something that we should access right now basically I'm, I'm saying right now because of course we're going to talk about the public inquiry which is on its way so so i'm getting at is it is it for us right now to have access to these things I think so. And I think the one example that I would give you to show how you expect an inquiry to reveal the truth about what went down and it didn't is I bring you back to Sue Gray's report, which is basically that many people felt like many stones had been not turned over and information had come out about certain people and hadn't come out about other people. So I think public trust in inquiries has dropped and perhaps these leaks will go away to making people feel like they have access to information that they wouldn't necessarily have got in other formal channels. And what broadly is the definition of public interest? The definition of public interest is something that uh, concerns the welfare or well-being of the general public. It is mm. distinctly different from being interesting to the public. Mm. It is in yeah. the public interest. Now, you know, I've listened to uh, the journalist Isabel Okershot talk both last night and this morning on Times Radio about this. Obviously, Isabel has got form for this kind of yep. stuff. I mean, you know, gee, if only there was a clue that she wasn't, you know, entirely to be trusted with dynamite information. Um, uh, you know, and she comes across as, as defensive and not wholly likeable. But as Isabel herself points out in this, this isn't about Isabel and this isn't about uh, Matt Hancock and Matt Hancock's feelings yeah. This is about, you know, decisions that were taken uh, during a kind of once-in-a-lifetime, unprecedented, uh, you know, public health crisis. So do I think they qualify as public interest? Yes, I think they do. Do I think that, that particularly the story that came out yesterday does what she and The Telegraph claim it does? I'm, that's, a, that's a different story. For me... There's a missing piece in this puzzle, obviously, you know. So the, the story is what changed between the morning when Matt Hancock texted that he you know, agreed with uh, the advice of the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, that everybody being sent to care homes, whether they came from the community or whether they came from hospitals, should be tested, to moving to a position in the afternoon where it was only people coming from hospital who should be tested before they went into to care homes. Now, what happened in between that was an operational meeting. We know from a separate interview with James Bethel, who was a health minister at the time, that at that operational meeting, it was made clear that they simply didn't have the tests available to do both and that they needed to prioritise. So WhatsApp give you an interesting psychological insight to show that they are proof of decision-making in and of themselves, uh, I think is a stretch for me because most of the decisions, or not, not most of the decisions, all of the decisions that would have been taken operationally would have been taken with experts, with the civil servants. All those meetings would have been minuted and information would have been supplied at that meeting that isn't conveyed in those WhatsApp messages. So it is a part of the picture, but people should not be uh, fooled into thinking it is by by uh, by any measure the whole picture and for that we should wait for the inquiry
Yeah, I think as well, there's an interesting point as well, which is about how much government business was conducted on WhatsApp. Yeah. And I understand, I mean, I do a lot of work on WhatsApp myself. I'm, you know, I work as a press manager. I get in touch with journalists all the time through WhatsApp. But there is an argument to be had, which is that is WhatsApp a super secure place to be having such high level discussions about public health and public safety? Should that not be happening on government emails? I mean, I re- I'm old enough to remember when Suella Bravman was sacked for using the wrong email and it just just kind of bring back this this issue of it doesn't seem very professional it seems very informal and you've got the crossover between you know Gavin Williamson and Matt Hancock making sort of derogatory remarks about teaching unions on the one hand and then you've got them discussing you know the most important business about public safety of millions of people the next it all just feels a bit chaotic I suppose what I would say well I'm quite intrigued by the whatsapp bit as well because it is just a function of normal life I mean we use it all the time in the radio station and that's life we all use it for friends for family for work and that's how it is it's not so much the security bear in mind that he has literally handed these messages over himself it's not as if somebody has managed to hack into whatsapp which is end-to-end encrypted it is in fact him handing them over what i would say though on the flip side is there's an argument that a platform like this that isn't an official government platform actually it's too easy to get rid of things from it and i realize that's potentially not what's happened in this case at all but it's just another consideration that if it's if it's a platform like that you could in theory get rid of stuff far too easily. Yeah, and and here we go. You know, this is, in fact, exactly what happened with the health minister, James Bethel. I mean, I think there's a couple of points to make here. One, it's an overstretch and an oversell to say this is government by WhatsApp, right? Government is conducted, all government is conducted in a uh, thorough and professional way where decision-making, operational decision-making is taken in front of civil servants and is all clearly minuted, right? But it doesn't look that like is, it is, though. That's that what is, those, but those chats give off an indication of something different. So I think we go back to this public opinion point, isn't it, which is that it may be the case, having insider knowledge, that you can look at those WhatsApps and still know that operationally... You know, procedures were followed and the decisions were made in the right places. But if I was just a normal person looking at those WhatsApps, it would make me, I would feel like it came across quite unprofessionally. Sure, but I'm not a normal person. I am a person who has sure. who has worked in government. And, I, and for me, looking at them, what they prove is exactly the point about what those second set of WhatsApp messages, the difference between what Matt Hancock says in the morning... And what he says in the afternoon is a reflection of yeah. a decision that was taken in an operational, minuted, properly minuted meeting. That's not, frankly, to say that, you know, lots of conversations don't happen on mm. WhatsApp. But, you know, frankly, twas ever thus, in the days before WhatsApp, if you wanted to keep something off email, you'd go and have a conversation face to face. It always used to crack me up when I, you know, when I was a spad and I'd talk to a civil servant and I'd say, look, I'm coming over here because, you know, I want to have a conversation that I want to keep off email, blah, mm. blah, blah. Not because it was dodgy no, or anything, no. but just because, you know, I wanted to have an honest conversation, a frank conversation. Mm. And then I'd get back to my desk and I'd have an email from the civil servant going, we spoke, you said blah, blah, blah. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, civil servants, aren't, you know, and rightly yeah, so, fine, like. they, you know, rightly so, but, you know... I'm like, dude, that's literally why I crossed the room to talk to you, was yeah. so that you didn't put in an email. And yeah. by the time I got back, we spoke. You said mm. we agreed. And I, I know, and so fine. But the reality is, if you really wanted to keep these things out of the public domain, and I think I'm right in saying that F, uh, WhatsApp is FOIable, um, if you wanted to keep these things, there are other encryption 
services like Signal, mm. where you can have communication, where it does literally disappear. It's like the grown-up version of Snapchat, right? Yeah. I mean, it you know it goes after two weeks or what have you. So what might happen as a consequence of this is it will drive more and more of these kind of conversations onto a service which uh, is time-limited in terms of its holding that data, like Signal, so that we'll never know. But yeah. that in itself is a problem. So what I, I'm not misty-eyed about the fact that, you know, political business gets conducted on WhatsApp. Being a former advisor myself, I have many WhatsApp chats. But what I'm saying is, is that in terms of the impression that it gives off, which is that what looks like to be extremely serious decisions that relate to public health, as I mentioned, have an own personal story about a tangible thing that happened because of these decisions, or at least in part because of the impacts that these decisions created. To see that going down on WhatsApp, where it can be difficult to communicate. I would like to see that these conversations were happening in person, officially. And also what it shows is that you've got individual ministers talking one-on-one to each other on a messaging platform about huge governmental decisions. And those decisions went wrong. So somewhere along the lines here, there was mistakes made, there was bad advice given or advice that was good wasn't followed. And because all of this went down on WhatsApp, it just gives the impression of not a very professional outfit. And if that's not the case, then that's not how it looks. A couple of things just to drop in, just by way of context and all of this, is number 10 has defended the right for ministers to discuss policy on WhatsApp. Here's what they said. The rules (laughs) set out that ministers are able to discuss government business over text messages or WhatsApp is entirely within the rules, understandably part and parcel of modern government. And on the FOI point, which is an interesting one, Kirsty, George Greenwood, who's the investigations reporter for The Times and is notorious for um, sending in freedom of information requests on anything and everything. Because Mr. He's, FOI. Exactly. He's very patient and very determined. He says, good luck trying to FOI for them. In my experience, you can get WhatsApp messages, but they take far, far longer to obtain than emails. Often mm. departments won't have access to them when private accounts are used, and then they have to ask the ministers. And so there are sort of more hurdles, I suppose, to overcome. And in the case of James Bethel, who oversaw the awarding of COVID contracts, he, he was replacing his mobile phone before it could be searched for information. And, and that is when the WhatsApp messages were lost. So I wonder if there are Uh, sort of future-proofing requirements here where actually government ministers can absolutely discuss on messaging platforms, but it's done in such a way that they become part of the government official record. I don't know, I suppose there's always ways around these things. Well, face-to-face conversations. Is the classic way around, even a phone Um, call. You know, or or indeed a phone call. I mean, and, and that's an intro. When we talk about Gavin Williamson, I think Gavin Williamson, when he was... Let go uh, <laughs> of a cliff. One of the many times he was let go. I think this yeah, one was for one? the for the for the uh, the breach of uh, or a potential breach of security. Mm. I think that was done on a balance of probabilities based on phone calls, uh, records oh, of I phone calls. I thought you were going to say it was done on WhatsApp. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was done on the balance of probabilities of of records of phone calls. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That he had made, but not the substance of them. Right. If you'd put in a call to X person at X time, then the balance of probabilities, even though you've got no proof that that was what was discussed, yeah. any reasonable person, and particularly if you see things through the prism of the ministerial code, which is a, I mean, like the short form version of the ministerial code is, does it pass the sniff test? If it doesn't, no, you've breached it. Yeah. I think that's kind of where he fell foul of it, right? Even without the proof. Here it is Mm. in the Huffington Post from May 2019. An 11-minute phone call is what appears to have sparked Gavin Williamson's downfall from government. Communications records showing that 
He spoke with journalist, who was then at the Telegraph, Stephen Swinford, after two crucial meetings of the National Security Council and Cabinet that day are understood to have revealed the exact length and time of the call. So yes, phone calls, phone calls to come out. I just should say at this point as well, there has been a statement this morning, Thursday morning, from Matt Hancock, who I think issued some comments about this before and then said he would be making no further comment. Behold, a further comment has emerged. (laughs) He says, I'm hugely disappointed and sad at the massive betrayal and breach of trust by Isabel Oakshop. Some of this we've referenced already. I'm also sorry for the impact on the very many people, political colleagues, civil servants and friends who worked hard with me to get through the pandemic and save lives. There is absolutely no public interest case for this huge breach. All the materials for the book have already been made available to the inquiry, which is the right and only place for everything to be considered properly and the right lessons to be learnt. As we've seen, releasing them in this way gives a partial bias account to suit an anti-lockdown agenda. I'm going to read I'm going to read it all. Isabel and I had worked closely together for more than a year on my book based on legal confidentiality and a process approved by the cabinet office. Isabel repeatedly reiterated the importance of trust throughout and then broke that trust last night. Uh, this was, uh, I think it was Wednesday night, I was accused of sending menacing messages to Isabel. That was when she was chatting to Piers Morgan, I think. This is also wrong, says Matt Hancock. When I heard confused rumours of a publication late on Tuesday night, I called and messaged Isabel to ask her if she had any clues about it and got no response. When I then saw what she'd done, I messaged to say it was a big mistake, nothing more. Can I just say, listening to all that, there's one person that Matt Matt Hancock hasn't apologised to. The public. public. He's such a bad political communicator. It actually makes me want to laugh at how rubbish he is. If a load of texts have come out, basically showing that you were rubbish at your job, or at least you were so inept and incapable, you led to some serious misery for many people, myself included, just say sorry. And then you can go on. Like the first thing he opens with is like, this is a massive betrayal of myself. What about the betrayal of the hundreds of people who lost loved ones you know, during COVID because of absolute ineptness from the Department of Health. I mean, it just makes me want to despair. The other thing I want to ask is like, where does Matt Hancock go now? Mm. I mean, surely there can't be anything else. On the coin of Gavin Williamson <laughs> phrase, as he's a recurring theme, should go away and shut up. Exactly. <laughs> there is that. I, one of my thoughts on this, in fact, two thoughts. One, have we learned anything that we didn't particularly know all, so far, I should say, because I think there's still more to come out of all of this. So, you know, what have we learned other than we've kind of put some some meat on the bone, I guess, of, of, of kind of what was understood to have been going on anyway? And two, does it reveal any source of maliciousness or does it actually portray a government that was grappling with a really difficult situation? I mean, there have been messages, haven't there, in all of this where Boris Johnson's been um, asking for somebody to explain the differences between percentages and probability and that sort of thing. Actually, doesn't that show a government that is communicating together that's the prime minister the health secretary the advisors the medical chief medical officer as well all communicating trying to understand and trying to process information is there something laudable in this i suppose kirsty okay right so what have we learned from this i think one of the most interesting things and this is a separate point to those that you've just raised but an important one Mm. we talk a lot these days about client journalism Mm. Uh, and how close and too close perhaps members of the lobby have got to members of government. And actually, we talk about this in relation to uh, to the issues around lockdown. Yeah. Uh, this, if nothing else, is a timely reminder that 
There is no story that if the story doesn't outweigh, it won't outweigh a breach of trust of what is perceived to be a friendship. You know, uh, it's all very well. I mean, I kind of, you know, cry me a river at Matt Hancock, but she talked repeatedly of trust. Of course she did. She's Mm. doing her job. Mm. She's getting information out of you. That is her job. You may not like it, but that is her job. So I think it's interesting for politicians to, to reflect again on the fact that, you know, we're not friends. Ultimately, we're not friends. You have your job to do and we have our job to do and we'll do them as fairly as we can. And you can, there's a separate argument about whether Isabel has done the overall profession of journalism a disservice or not by doing this in terms of, of public trust mm. but, and, and how much it's going to uh, put some barriers up for journalists trying to do their jobs and get politicians to trust them. So I think that's one point. Yep. I think the second point, what do we learn? I don't feel that in the big ticket stuff that's out of this that I have learned anything that I don't think I already knew. Yeah. Uh, I think we already knew that terrible, terrible mistakes were made yeah. around care homes. We knew that at the time. You know, the media, to its credit, very quickly picked up on the crisis in care homes and kept on going on it. So I think we knew that. I think there are, you know, a couple of asides here that are eyebrow-raising for me that I didn't know. I mean, for me, the idea that Jacob Rees-Mogg's son yeah. uh, can get couriered to him a test for COVID when they were so scarce that doctors and nurses couldn't yeah. get them, I think was appalling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, I have learned that George Osborne's got a much funnier and drier sense of humour than I've ever given him credit for <laughs> um, in some of his uh, extremely laconic and sarcastic exchanges with Matt Hancock. <laughs> I don't think of the big ticket stuff. It's it's revealed much that we we didn't already know. Mm. And, and, it, and in terms of handling of the pandemic, look, I don't think any of us should rush to judgment on it. Uh, I think we already have decided what we've decided overall about this. And I don't think the results of the public inquiry is going to shift many people's minds one way or another. But I would just say, like everything in life, you know, the results of this is going to be complex and complicated, right? You know, sometimes people made uh, appalling decisions for the right reasons. Sometimes they might have made right decisions for appalling reasons. I think the inquiry will pick all through that. But I think most people by now have pretty much settled on what side of the fence they think their opinion about the government's handling of this is. When you talk about client journalism, it made me smile when you mentioned George Osborne because I thought what you were going to say is how outrageous that exchange between Matt Hancock and George Osborne is when Matt Hancock essentially asks for a favour, which is to get a splash about testing. And George Osborne immediately replies and says, yes, absolutely. And to me, that kind of transactional relationship that's on show there, I understand that it exists, but it's an interesting one for the public to see. Just on that, just before you carry on, because Emily Sheffield, who is former editor of The Evening Standard as well, uh, um, and so it's worth noting her response to this, she said, I just want to gently point out that Osborne was not editor on November 2020, the date of these particular WhatsApps, and had no editorial control of the newspaper at that point. He was editor-in-chief, an advisory role and a columnist. His editorship ended July the 1st. So just by way of depth on that. Yeah, one. I mean, and that in itself is an interesting interaction there that Emily Sheffield is distancing herself from those messages. The other thing I want to point out, which is the whole concept about political comms, which is that leaking as the thick of it has displayed in that excellent episode is just a part and parcel of political life. It happens, politicians leak, journalists will take leaks and publish them like it's just a part of the ecosystem. But there's always that thing, isn't there, where if you're somebody's source, you're giving them information 
But you know that if you're dealing with a very good political journalist, there may be one day that they burn you as a source for that kind of big story. And I think what we're seeing here is is an example of that, which is that I assume Isabel has hedged her bets and thought that this is a, a source worth burning. And I think what has happened here is that Matt Hancock has been left with egg on his face. And I think it also shows that maybe she's made a kind of calculated decision, which is how useful is Matt Hancock going to be in the future? Probably not very. So mm. maybe now is the time to burn that source. And I'd be interested, Kirsty, about your thoughts on that, because I suppose it shows like not everybody's life cycle in politics is forever. Yeah, I mean, look, I've always... Uh, here comes another Kirsty's rule of comb. <laughs> Take note, get your pens and paper uh, ready. <laughs> it's not a very deep or sophisticated <laughs> one. I don't think you need a pen for this one. But the relationship between lobby journalists and politicians in Westminster, in Holyrood, in Cardiff, wherever, is a marathon and not a sprint. By and large, you can and do routinely kind of mini-burn your contacts from time mm. to time. I think if you are fair and decent about that and give them a decent enough heads up uh, and a balanced response and a you know and a balanced write up that's part and parcel of the game mm. and everybody knows it and accepts that right what isabel has done here is is not fair and she didn't give them a heads up so you know again you can you can make your argument about uh, what she's done for the overall uh, perceptions of trust in journalism but you're right ultimately you get to a point where you make a calculation. This story is bigger than this contact, and therefore I'm going to back the story and not the contact. Mm-hmm. She said, Isabella Oakeshott said this morning, I have a responsibility to journalism, not a responsibility to Matt Hancock. I mean, the reality is Matt Hancock's yesterday's man, which is why she feels she can burn him. Mm-hmm. And, and politicians should be wise and savvy to that. You know, I've always sort of said, always be wary of a journalist on their way up that you're talking to or a politician on their way down because that is the moment of kind of maximum danger for you in your conversations you know a journalist on a way up desperate to make a splash no disrespect to journalists on the way up i i was on the way up once um (laughs) uh, i was the future once uh you know journalists on the way up desperate to make a name for themselves desperate to make a splash they might push something further than you know someone that's got less to prove Mm. Politicians on the way down, they've lost all their cachet, they've lost all their strength. So, that's yeah, for press as well. You know, and, it, and Isabel looked at him and thought, you know, can I afford to find him? Yes, I can. The balance in the balance is really, also, really fascinating. Really fascinating. I'll give you 30 seconds, Frankie, because we must discuss the Windsor framework as yes, well. Today. We sure. <laughs> I was just going to say that there's on the flip side of this as well, if you're a political advisor, equally, you, I, I have never done it myself, but I know the case of people who make a calculated decision about their colleagues. And if they would like to go up the rung, they might perhaps give a big old juicy leak that might do a mating, but mm. they get a better job. It happens on both sides. Oh, it's, it's part of the dark arts, I suppose, that people refer to. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the thing. Maybe we're getting the lid lifted on that a little bit with all of this as well. Your thoughts on the lockdown files. Have you learned something new? Is it in your interest? You are the public. Is it in your interest? Email us. The inbox is always open. And the address is hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch. We would love to hear from you on anything and everything we're talking about. If you've got questions or comments as well, then get those in. Hello at whitehallsources.com. In a few moments then, we will discuss the Windsor framework. A good Woo-hoo! week for Rishi Sunak. <laughs> Goodness me. From checkers, whatever it was, to the Northern Ireland, what's it called? To this. 
the Windsor Framework. Stay with us. Oh, hello. Well, you thought you'd got rid of me, didn't you? Well, here I am in the break as well. You are welcome. Here at Whitehall Sources, we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So we have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. I'm pleased to say their story checks out, actually. Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a codename. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. This is Whitehall Sources with Callum McDonald, Kirsty Buchanan and Frankie Leach. Thanks for being with us. It's Thursday the 2nd of March. Already on the podcast then, we've done the lockdown files. Your thoughts very welcome on that. And now it is time to turn to the Windsor framework, a defining moment for Rishi Sunak. And potentially, Kirsty, we can say that he got Brexit done. Yes, we can. Uh, please, God, please, God, that <laughs> yeah. we can say that. Please, DUP, please, ERG, please don't stand in the way of what is an extremely good deal for the people of Northern Ireland. Um, look, a, a bunch of things that I probably want to say about this. This does give truth to the lie that Boris Johnson got Brexit done. He didn't. Uh, he fudged Brexit at the expense of Northern Ireland to get the rest of Britain out, but throw up a trade barrier between the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. This was always the point, right? When you have a country that has a border, a land border with the European Union, you were always going to have to make a sliding scale decision about what mattered most to you, right? And ultimately, the Boris Johnson deal, look, it is a deal, but it is a deal like every deal that has downsides to it. And the big downsides for it was that it created a huge amount of friction in trade between goods coming from the United Kingdom to Northern Ireland. It was deeply, deeply unpopular with the people of Northern Ireland, who, by the way, didn't vote for Brexit. Whereas Theresa May's deal, for all its faults, and it was unsellable to the party, was quite popular in Northern Ireland because it was on the other end of the sliding scale, which allowed for frictionless trade, between the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. Now, what Rishi Sunak has done, excuse me while I wax lyrical about this, but I am a <laughs> radical centrist and he's managed to sort of triangulate, if you like, in an old Tony Blairism, somewhere between Boris Johnson's fudge uh, and our backstop, this, uh, this front stop, if you like, uh, idea of sovereignty for Northern Ireland where you have a Stormont break. So one of the big problems, if you like, has always been a dynamic regulatory alignment. What on earth does that mean yeah, in was... human speak? <laughs> I hear you say. Uh, well, in human speak, it means that you know you you know it is one thing to have a, a group of rules and regulations for goods going into Northern Ireland that then go into the European Union that are in line with European standards. 
One of the big problems that's always been grappled with was what happens when new standards come along and standards that don't suit Northern Ireland and don't suit the United Kingdom. You can't forever tie Northern Ireland and, by extension, the whole of the rest of Great Britain to the regulatory regime and standards of the European Union. Not because we want to drive down our standards, but because out should mean out. And the Stormont break, if you like, basically replaces a backstop with a front stop. If Stormont thinks that any changes or new regulations that come from Europe have a significant impact on Northern Ireland and then therefore, by extension, Great Britain, then Stormont has, has an ability to challenge that and that would go to individual arbitration. It is a deeply, deeply complicated, very complex, but frankly, very workable solution to the problem of uh, regulatory alignment. The other huge win, and this is a huge win for Rishi, is the green channels. Now, one of the biggest problems we had was around frictionless trade. And I don't know if you can remember all the conversations about trusted trader schemes and max facts and all that kind of... We had all this at the time. Mm. And Europe wouldn't budge on it. They said it was non-negotiable, right? They were going to have checks and balances because they couldn't guarantee what goods coming from Britain to Northern Ireland were going to stay in Northern Ireland and which ones were going to go over the border. Uh, So this is a big move by the European Union towards our position to say in terms that there will be, if you register, there will be a whole uh, section of trusted trader statuses where it's taken pretty much as a given that anything that is coming from the United Kingdom into Northern Ireland won't be subjected to checks and balances. It will go through what is called a green channel. Uh, And that is a big, big concession. So there's two major concessions uh, that have been brought from the European Union who for for years have insisted that these were non-negotiable kind of red lines for them. So it's a massive, you know, diplomatic win for him. You know, it plays to all his strengths of of patience, of consensus, of relationship building, of being a technocrat, actually. It's a very, very complicated deal. And so then where are the problems with this deal? Uh, well, I think they're the same kind of sticking problems that, with different parliamentary arithmetic, by the way. But yeah. uh, the sticking problems are twofold with this. One, the DUP will want to look and are looking very closely at how that Stormont break can be uh, applied. Uh, the word, the devil in the detail here is around the word significant. In reality, how and how often can you trigger that break? What would be the circumstances, the exceptional circumstances? in which you could trigger that break. Mm. And if, like the backstop, they think that actually, in reality, that isn't as sold to them and that it doesn't create the sovereignty that they require, then the DUP might not sign up to it. The DUP isn't a homogenous whole like any party. So we've had quite a cautious welcome from DUP leader Jeffrey Donaldson on this, but you've heard more hardline uh, DUP politicians like Sammy Wilson uh, and Ian Paisley Jr. saying, mm, we're not we're not sure about this. If the DUP don't sign up to it, two things. One, Stormont won't get up and running again, which will be a, a travesty for the people of Northern Ireland. They've gone without mm. uh, a functioning government for two years. They have all the, all the issues that we have, you know, uh, around the health service, school standards, crime. It would be a travesty for the people of Northern Ireland and it would continue to put pressure on the peace agreement. I think the second point is I think the ERG, who are the, the hardcore of the Conservative Party, 
have said pompously again that they're going to send this to the Star Chamber of Lawyers to see whether it cuts the master. I think they're going to sit and wait and take their lead from the DUP mm. uh, on this. Uh, frankly, the arithmetic on this doesn't matter anymore because if it goes to a vote, uh, well, when it goes to a vote in the House of Commons, it will get through probably uh, on the majority Conservative vote, but also with the support this time round of Keir Stunn, which is a big difference to to the situation we had where Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party would not back. And um, Keir Starmer, our, let's not forget where he was. Yeah, in uh, uh, yes, including including uh, one Keir Starmer would not back our Brexit deal. So this is a pivotal moment for him. It really does move the dial in terms of key concessions for sovereignty, for frictionless trade, uh, and for uh, meeting the challenges of uh, regulatory alignment. You will not find a better explanation of the Windsor framework than what you have just <laughs> had from Kirsty Buchanan. I promise you that. Oh, I, I can I, actually, to be fair, if you want a short form version of that, <laughs> go and read a thread by Raoul Ruperel, oh, who, nice. uh, who uh, I worked with at, at Number 10, uh, who is a brilliant, brilliant mind. Uh, and about as sophisticated, fair and balanced a read of Brexit and understanding of Brexit of any human being you will meet on the planet. Yeah. And if I can just... I mean, the first thing I did was was go to Raoul's thread to see what he thought about it, and he says that, in essence, the Stormont break is a big change, unexpected, essentially allowing a petition of concern in Stormont to lead a UK veto of changes to the rules covered by the protocol and not subject to EC but arbitration. This is a power that goes far beyond what we've been seeing before and supplements existing veto on any new rules added to the protocol. I mean, I mean do we think that Rishi Sunak, though, might have got himself in a bit of a pickle here, which is that he was in Northern Ireland um, in front of a big wall of Coca-Cola because he was at a Coke factory where apparently he said, I'm a total Coke addict. Again. made me laugh. Again. Um, but he spoke about the unique and privileged position in having easy trade access in Northern Ireland to the UK and EU markets. Which then, understandably, loads of people said, well, why can't we have that access here in the UK? Because inevitably, loads of the problems that have been caused um, since Brexit, and partly because of a shoddy Brexit deal originally, was the fact that we've had so many difficulties in terms of massive queues at Dover with lorries because of massive amounts of paperwork. People are now saying it's really expensive for them to take their pets to Europe. I had one person say to me the other day, so I can take my dog to Northern Ireland, but I can't take them to France without loads of paperwork, a big passport and a load of money. So I wonder, Kirsty where that puts kind of political relations between Northern Ireland, but also kind of the soft Brexiteers and people who are so anti-Brexit here in the UK, because clearly that causes a problem, no? Well, look, we are not going to move towards a smoother, less uh, friction uh, trading relationship with our biggest, still remains our biggest trading partner, whilst we're basically at daggers drawn over the Northern Ireland protocol. So... What this does, apart from just genuinely get Brexit done and genuinely create a system that works, most importantly for the people of Northern Ireland, is it creates a much better working relationship between the UK government and the European Union. On the face of that, that unlocks a number of potential opportunities for us in the short term around better security, better relationship with France over migrant crossings, small boat crossings, but also the Horizon Project, which is around science and research. I suspect over time, and you would never, ever get anybody in government to say this, except when it was floated in the Sunday Times a few months ago and everyone fiercely denied it. But over time, over generations, what you'll probably have is a, is a, is a group of individual kind of trading relationships that, that, that grow up 
around certain sectors which make sense to the EU and make sense to us. I hear all the time, oh, you know, Rishi's not a good politician, you know, he's got no political instinct. He's managed to work diligently, carefully and cleverly to get a very significant deal uh, to the line. Uh, it will get over the line in Parliament. Uh, it remains to be seen whether the DUP will sign up to it and still won't get back up and running again. But if it is, it's a major, major achievement for him. He's also managed to outmanoeuvre Boris Johnson and he has the power to, to, to get this through with or without the ERG. So, you know, it is a big achievement. Yeah. It's a good week for Rishi. Well, so on that note, and we've, I just want very briefly a couple of political con- considerations to conclude with uh, for this week. Um, the first, Frankie, is to you, actually, because uh, this is from Chris Smythe, actually, from The Times, who tweeted the following. Uh, Today is clearly a very good day for Sunak in imposing his authority on his party, keeping Johnson at bay and for his competent image. Uh, But no one in Great Britain will vote on Northern Ireland at the next election. So it's possible that Labour may ultimately benefit because Brexit has been removed as an issue. If it's done, it's done. And so actually it kind of, to some extent, for the majority of people across the UK, disappears into the past as an issue. Do you agree with that take? Is this an opportunity for Labour? I do entirely. And also what it gives Keir Starmer is his cover because now his Labour Party is going to be voting for Brexit. So it kind of, to a degree, gets rid of all of that criticism, which is Keir Starmer did everything in his power, which he did previously, to stop Brexit because he is essentially going to support Rishi Sunak in getting a Brexit deal over the line that ticks it off. I think people are right when they say that people won't vote about what happens in Northern Ireland, presumably, unless you live in Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, But I do think Rishi Sunak has kind of made a calculated decision here, which is that he essentially put out some political columns, which is in the form of a picture, which showed all of the bad things about the old Brexit deal in one column and then showed all of the great things or things that had been resolved in the right column. But what it essentially did was say, like, we were so terrible before and now we've kind of fixed all of the things we were terrible about. Now, I think that's a calculated decision to make everybody think about how rubbish Boris's deal was and take Brexit away from Boris because that was Boris's big thing, right? Boris got Brexit done, even though he actually didn't. And now Rishi has a claim to Brexit, right? He has a claim to the Brexit deal. He has a claim to getting Brexit done. And let's see how that plays out in the next election because that does change the dial. They're clearly very worried about a potential Boris Johnson comeback. And I think that it was a clever decision. I wonder whose it was um, to kind of make that really clear break away from Boris's Brexit and make this Rishi's Brexit. And with that in mind, then back to Kirsty for a thought on this. You gov this morning saying Rishi Sunak's favourability ratings have risen as the Windsor framework inches towards adoption in the UK. That's their caption. Uh, favourable is up seven to thirty four percent for Rishi Sunak. Uh, I suppose there is. Um, you know, there's just one poll. There's always a health warning with these sorts of things. And you still, you've highlighted the issues that could come down the line from MPs and things. Might not fix all of Northern Ireland's problems, but I suppose there's that. There's the kind of favourability thing. And there's also a feeling of momentum, is there not? And how important that is. And if the government swoops on many issues quickly and effectively, there's some suggestion that small boat crossings will be next on the hit list. That actually there is something, something to be said for that momentum for Rishi Sunak. Yeah, which is which is some of the point of having his his five pledges at the start of the year. This is what uh, you know I want good to look like, if you like, by the end of the year. And I think uh, if you can get there, um, then you can make claim to delivery. 
Uh, and it comes back to the central point that we've we've talked about again and again and again on this. You know, Rishi Sulak is quite popular with the public. He has always been quite popular with the public. Uh, there is a disconnect, if you like, between uh, how the public view him and how some within the party view him. Uh, but their party has the same choice now that it had when he took over, mm. which is nothing, nothing drives polls faster and harder than disunity within a party. So if, you know, the Boris acolytes calculate that his fox is shot, at least for now, and rally behind and uh, keep their own counsel and display unity and discipline, there is still a world where the Conservatives can win the next election. Right? It's a very far way off, but, no, you know, but there is still a landing strip for it. It is, mm. it is possible. And actually, mathematically, uh, all things being equal, quite a large landing strip. But that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen if they don't unite. Um, you know, so this is the choice they've got. This is the choice they've always got. There are lots of incredible hurdles between now and then. You know, nothing, you're not going to solve by 24 the feeling that we have in this country that, you know, quite a lot of it is broken and nobody seems to be able to turn around, you know, an NHS with a 7.2 million backlog, mm. you know, uh, school standards, public sector strikes, uh, high inflation at the moment. These are all contributing to kind of a feeling that everything costs a fortune and nothing really works. Yeah. No one's going to solve that. No one's going to solve that in the next year. But if you can tick off competence, delivery and command over your party, then you've got a shot. And here endeth the lesson for this week. <laughs> Good. Uh, that is the Windsor framework for you. Also the lockdown files today on a brilliant episode, I'm sure you'll agree, of Whitehall Sources. Make sure you follow and subscribe. Thank you, Kirsty. Thank you, Frankie. Um, so good to have you here as ever we'll be back next week with more political analysis from those who have lived it and those who have breathed it if you're into your Scottish politics given all that's going on bear in mind our little sister spin-off podcast is Hollywood Sources search for that and follow and subscribe and you can get similar insight from those who have been walking in the corridors of Hollywood in the last few years including Alex Salmon's former chief of staff and the former Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives as well. Those are our regulars on Hollywood Sources. Thank you for being with us here. We will speak to you next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.